log cabin, which is in the hinterland of the Gold Coast. And I think it's where everything that is watery all lands first. Because the entire week, it is just bucketed rain down in the hinterland valley, which is just sort of behind, uh, not too far from Mullumbar. Uh, if you've never been to the Numbar Valley, I want to put it out there. It is one of the most beautiful places in Australia. Uh, I don't think I'd be wrapping it enough. As we were travelling up one morning, uh, we were staying at home, and as I was travelling up with one of my pastor mates, we looked up, and there's huge cliffs. If you've ever been there, it's this, it's this little valley like this, and the Narang River actually runs right through the middle of it. As we're looking up, there is these huge waterfalls. It must have been a couple of hundred feet high. And uh, I'd never seen waterfalls down there like that. It is just incredible. Uh, a beautiful place to be. But um, today, um, we were all planning to be out of camp. Uh, so I had something completely different uh, planned. And as uh, the rain kept coming, I was thinking to myself, uh, what the pastor's speaking about, teaching all the pastors, about 90% of it was bouncing past my head. It was, it was full on. Uh, it would take me an hour or two after each presentation to actually go, Phew, okay, I think I know where he was going. It was incredible. All of the pastors were just, not everyone was having 90% go over them. It was an incredible time for all the pastors. We're talking about soteriology. Um, and as they say, if you can't spell it, don't use the word. But uh, we just had an incredible time talking about the salvation of Jesus. And it was inspiring. Uh, so if you ever get to hear Pastor Darius, he will actually be at big camp this year, taking the scripture time in the big tent. I would highly, highly recommend going and listening to some of his presentations. They were on, they were really, really good. <laughs> okay, let's begin with prayer. Lord, just want to thank you for being an incredible God. And uh, I just want to pray that in the next half an hour, that you'll just, you'll be here. If there's anything in our minds or hearts that need to be just sort of pushed out of the way, I pray you do that now. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you can reveal in your scripture today. Amen. Have you ever, have you ever lost something or someone? Have you ever lost something or someone? Now, I must admit, in my time as a parent, I think Tara and I have done okay. I don't think we've ever lost Dylan, Bella or Jaya. Although I know Dylan at some point in time hit on Kari in Target when he was little. But how many of you have ever played that game where you've actually hidden from your parents at a shopping centre? Put your hand up. <laughs> There's a few honest people. How many of you who obviously would need to be a parent, but how many of you as parents have at some point in time you've actually lost a child? <laughs> that is scary. <laughs> it was quite funny. One of our friends down at Kingscliff Church they always come to church in two cars. Um, I don't know why, but anyway, they do madly love each other. Uh, but they came in two cars. And uh, they got home after church one day, had lunch, um, sat down. They were just relaxing in the lounge room. And uh, our friend, we'll call her April. It wasn't April. Uh, and John, it wasn't John, uh, looked at each other and said, do you know where Jesse is? Didn't you bring him home? Didn't you? No. Jesse, fortunately, was back at church, 
And some people at church had fed him. Some people at church had played games with him. And they waited for parent A and B to return to pick him up. They had lost someone, didn't even realize it. But have you ever lost something? Surely we can all put our hand up to that. Have, have we all lost something in our lives? Yeah. <laughs> Some of you are not putting your hands up because it's too much effort. <laughs> you know, when you lose something and you're completely at wit's end, you get to the point where you just think to yourself, I cannot find it. You know, I had to go through this very, very quickly. But when I was pastoring at Springwood, which for those of you who have never been to Springwood Church, it's quite a large church. It's got lots of nooks and crannies. <laughs> It's had like three or four builds in its time, so there are lots of nooks and crannies of that church. And uh, it was about 10 years ago, and Cara and I were heading up from the Gold Coast and pastoring there, and uh, we'd leave home about 7.30 in the morning. At 8.30, we had a youth breakfast, and we just did up this room, and uh, we were bringing a lot of the food. We turned up, we set up the toast, we set up the mug, we had some food cooking, and we had our youth breakfast. Lauren might have even been young enough to be one of the youth then. And uh, we were having our breakfast, and uh, we finished breakfast, and then um, I was involved in helping take the youth Sabbath school program, did that, packed up quickly because needed to uh, grab the kids and head up, and I was preaching that day up in the hall at Springwood. And uh, boom, as soon as the sermon finished, I did one of the things I enjoyed the most, talk. Uh, Cara reckons if you can't find me, just listen out, and you'll figure out where I am. So you never lose me. And I was enjoying talking. And then as soon as that was finished, we had Pathfinders that afternoon at Stringland. So went and had a picnic lunch quickly and came back, did Pathfinders. And at six o'clock at night, just to make the day even more chaotic, we organized a group from the Junior Sabbath School to paint, repaint our Sabbath School room. So we painted the Sabbath School room. And at eight o'clock, um, Cara or someone said, oh, you've got the church keys. Uh, could you go and grab something? And I felt in my pockets, and I thought, no, they're not there. Now, this was one of the master keys to the church. There's only a few given out. And if you lose them, it can be quite expensive because you can replace all the locks in your whole church by losing master keys because people won't insure you. And I had all of these visions of being pulled before the church board because I had lost the church's, one of the few church master keys. And I could not find it. After about an hour and a half of looking, a panic started to actually fill my heart and soul because I had lost one of the church's master keys. Now, I want to tell you there's a happy ending to the story. I did find them. But I'm not going to tell you just yet where I found them because then you would think I'm a goose and for the entire sermon I would have no credibility this morning. So, if I remember, I'll let you know at the end. But today, I want to preach about one of the greatest chapters in all of the Scripture, and it is found in Luke chapter 15. A lot of you are sitting there going, what does that mean, Luke 15? Let me explain to you why Luke 15 is often referred to as the gospel in the gospel. For those of you who don't know what the word gospel means, it's translated good news, so it is the good news in the good news. And it sounds like, what? What are you talking about? Like, good news is good news. How could there be something even more like good news? Well, let me explain why. Today, there are three parables that Jesus shared, and, and I want to share the context of those three parables before we jump into Luke 
chapter 15. And there is no chapter in the New Testament so well and so dearly loved as the 15th chapter of Luke. I, I believe it in the Gospels. It has been the, called the Gospel in the Gospels as if it contained the very essence of the good news which Jesus came to tell. Now, in our series about the I Am, I've had just a small opportunity to share the I Am and how God fits into the I Am picture. And last week, I had a small opportunity again to share Jesus, how He fits in to creating the type of identity that enriches our lives. Well, when I read that within Luke chapter 15, it is the essence of the good news, what it basically means is it is at the core of being able to actually show you and me how good God and Jesus can be. How good God and Jesus can be. Now, these parables arose, and if we just turn to that first passage, which is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, just briefly, I want to get the context of where Jesus was, and again, who he was speaking to. Now, the first parable is called a shepherd's joy, or the lost sheep. We'll go to the next, to the passage itself. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to do what? Hear Jesus. They were actually there. They'd actually chosen that day, the sinners and the tax collectors had actually chosen to come and to spend time with Jesus. It wasn't a dialogue of saying, hey, Jesus, what about this or what about that? It was actually them just sitting and enjoying listening to Jesus' words. The next verse. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can any of you remember seven days ago, I preached about the simple message of Jesus? And the simple message of Jesus is that it's, the Bible taught us last week that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. And in this passage, we find in the first verse, a whole heap of sinners gathered around to hear Jesus. And then in the second verse, we find, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There was a polarization happening because Jesus' message was for the people. And the Pharisees' message was a little bit different. But they were the religious leaders of the time. Their zone and their focus about their religiosity was focused on something very different, something very hypocritical, something very judgmental, something that a lot of us have perhaps been in situations or churches where people have been pointing the finger at you for being a sinner. But I want to tell you, that's who Jesus came for. The Pharisees hated it. Let me just explain something about the Pharisees. These parables arose out of three different situations about something being lost. It was an offense to the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus associated with men and women who by the Orthodox were labeled as sinners. In fact, the Pharisees actually had a word for sinful people. They actually referred to them as the people of the land. We're not talking about farmers 
we're actually talking about the people of the land were the people that the Pharisees and religious leaders actually downgraded and said, hey, as a religious leader, we're up here. But as sinners, you're down there. And the Pharisees had also set up rules and regulations to do with the people of the land. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secrets. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of such a person to have him as his guest. He was forbidden, so it was impossible to have any business dealings with him. It was the deliberate Pharisaic aim to avoid every contact with people who did not observe the petty details of the law. Obviously, they were shocked when a man called Jesus of Nazareth was taking time to sit and to speak with people they considered as people of the land, sinners. So the Pharisees did not like the fact that Jesus associated with sinners. But the three parables that we're going to look at explain something about our Jesus and they explain something about the gospel that Jesus not only refers to, but, but just pours over human beings. You know, there are many people who felt like they're not good enough to be a follower of Jesus. They're not good enough because the guilt and shame that they have because of sin has damaged and hurt and scarred them so much they can't be good enough. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are people that just believe because they were saved once, they're always saved, they're predestined to live while other people on this earth are predestined to die. Somewhere in the middle of that crazy spectrum, most of us will sit. So Jesus shares the essence of the gospel, the joy of heaven, in three short parables. We've already read verses 1 and 2. Let's continue in verse 3. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you, now most of us here aren't farmers. Uh, I don't even know what to call a male cow, apparently. Neil, Neil, Neil had to help me with that. But suppose one of you has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go out for the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, and this is the scriptural application for us. I tell you, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's the first parable. The parable of the lost sheep or the joy of shepherds. So Jesus told them the parable of the lost sheep or the shepherd's joy. The shepherd in Judea had a hard and dangerous task. Pastures were scarce. The narrow central plateau was only a few miles wide and either on each side of the plateau were cliffs. 
And if an animal was to wander off, possibly sudden destruction would come upon that poor animal. There were no restraining walls. There were no fences. And the sheep would simply wander. The Bible told us in that parable that one sheep wanders off, then the shepherd had to make the decision not to put 99 in a pen, but to leave the 99 and to go and find the one that it got itself lost. The shepherd. The shepherd was personally responsible for each of those sheep. If a sheep was lost, the shepherd must at least bring home the fleece to show how it had died. These shepherds were experts at tracking and could follow the simple footsteps of a sheep for many, many miles. There was not a shepherd for whom it was not all in a day's work to risk for their life for the sheep. There's a famous Old Testament shepherd. Can anyone remember who that famous Old Testament shepherd might be? He became a king. He took on a huge giant with a simple sling. And what was his name? King David. From the lineage of David, the famous shepherd who became one of the great kings, Jesus came from that lineage. Jesus came from that same lineage. Many of the flocks were communal flocks, which basically meant in a community, the entire economy was reliant upon the shepherds looking after their investment, the sheep. There's there's probably evidence to prove that not all the time, but sometimes there'd be two or three shepherds and there would actually be a lead shepherd. So when the sheep or a sheep had gotten lost or into trouble, The other shepherds would perhaps stay back and look after the sheep while one of the younger shepherds would go out and risk their life for the sheep. So when this parable ends, we find that the shepherd picks up the sheep and puts it over his shoulders and carries that poor little sheep back to safety. When the shepherd brings the sheep back to safety, the Bible told us in the story that the community rejoices. The community rejoices. That's the picture that Jesus drew of our God. That said, Jesus is what God is like. God is as glad when a lost sinner is found as a shepherd is when a stray sheep has been brought home. You know, it's, it's amazing and it's truly tremendous truth that God is kinder than men. The Orthodox or the Pharisees and religious leaders would write off tax collectors, they would write off the sinners as being beyond the pale or even deserving of nothing but destruction. But not our God. Men may give up hope of a sinner, but not our God. God loves a people who never stray away. But in his heart, there is always the joy of joys when a lost one is found and comes home. It is a thousand times easier to come back to God than to come home to the bleak criticism of men. So in wrapping up parable number one, 
Let me tell you about our God. Our God, our Jesus, have the complete focus on sinful people. Our God sits with sinners. Our God is more comfortable to be in the presence of sinners than those who see themselves to be orthodox or righteous. Our God rejoices when one sinner repents and changes their life course and come to Him. Our God will risk the 99 to go after the one that is lost. That is the God, that is the Jesus that we find, that we serve in the parable of the joyous shepherd. But then we come to parable number two. Parable number two is a very, very short parable. If you blink, you'll miss it. So let's have a look at it. It's the parable of a woman who lost a coin. Now, let me just give you a little bit of context, the type of homes that they lived in. They were homes that were made of mud brick. They had an 18-inch by 18-inch window. So for those of you who don't know what inches are, uh, one and a half feet. But for those of you who don't know what feet are, about 50 centimetres by 50 centimetres, give or take a few centimetres, just to help you out. So it's not a big window, and that was the only natural light that actually came into one of these small houses. Now, most of us will have carpet or tiles, or perhaps timber, perhaps concrete, doesn't matter, as your floor. In those days, it was simply dirt, but they would actually use straw, and they would actually put the straw down at the flooring of the house, and that was it. So that gives you a little bit of context for this lady's home. Parable number two, starting in verse eight of Luke 15. Well, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, those coins, one coin was equivalent to about a day's wages. Now, there are two possibilities with that coin. If she'd actually saved and saved and saved, that one coin could be the difference between starvation or survival. So the Bible picks up that she does not want to lose that coin. In fact, she gets out her tiny little torch, her light, and she gets out of her broom and she sweeps and sweeps. And as you can imagine, if you're sweeping and there's already hay on the floor, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. She's looking for a glimmer of that coin so that she can go, oh, there it is. And as she worked and worked the ground looking for it, it would have taken some time to find it. There are two reasons why the woman would have been so eager to find the coin. First reason is what I just said. It was worth a day's wage and it was the difference between when you're in poverty between life and death, survival and non-survival, food and no food. The second reason is that it's a bit more romantic. When you got married, you would actually, as a woman, you would actually wear, uh, I guess, some jewellery around the top of your head and it would have 10 coins attached to it. She lost that. For years and years, maybe a girl would have saved up and saved up and saved up to actually buy that ornament. So one day when she got married, it would make her a woman again. And she'd lost it. In either case, 
whether it was the ornament or whether it was a coin to survive. It was easy to think of the joy of the woman when at last she saw the glint of the coin. At last she found the elusive coin. At last she grabbed it and held on to it. And the thing that amazes me in this story is like in story one, she invites her neighbors to come around and celebrate with her. Most of us, if we lose something, we don't tend to want to invite the whole community to come and celebrate because we're a little bit embarrassed. We lost the coin, we can't find it. But in either case, the first parable or the second, the community is invited to celebrate the thing that was lost, the thing that was nearest and dearest to this woman, and they celebrate. No Pharisee, no religious leader during Jesus' time would have ever dared or dreamed of a God like that. A great Jewish scholar has admitted that this is one of the absolute new things that Jesus taught about God. Well, let me tell you why. That he actually searches for men. Because the Jewish Orthodox don't believe in that. It is something new that Christianity, it is something new that Jesus Christ would actually go out and search. The first parable, we, we learn about the shepherd. We know that Jesus is a good shepherd and if we're lost, he will go to wherever, wherever the dangers are to bring us back. And in the story of this woman, Jesus also would search, just as the woman did, to find that coin. Jesus is in the business of searching for sinners. Not just waiting for them to come, but actually searching. Taking his gloves off, getting his feet dirty, and searching for you and for me. The Jews might have agreed that if a man came calling home to God in self-abasement and prayed for pity, he might find it. He might find it but they never would have conceived of a God who went out to search for sinners. We believe in the seeking love of God because we see that love incarnate in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to seek and save that which was lost. Our God seeks out sinners. Our God seeks out sinners. Our God seeks out you and me. He takes us from wherever we are and he brings us to him. Our God seeks out sinners. As a sinful human being, this truth is awesome. It does not mean we keep sinning for sin's sake. It means we have a condition called sinfulness. But this does distract God's willingness to seek, uh, this does not distract our God's willingness to seek out sinners. No matter how hard he has to work, no matter how long it takes, our God will seek you. Our God will find you and he, won't, and he has to wait for us to make up our minds. He will wait because our God is patient. Then we come to our third uh, parable. Now this is quite a long parable and I might if it's okay because I don't want us to be till 12 o'clock listening to the parables. I, I might abridge it for you, but if you get a chance, have a look in Luke chapter 15 and verses 11 to 32. 
21 verses, and it is one of the most amazing stories in all of Scripture. And it's the parable of a young man who comes to his dad. He's not the oldest son, he's the second eldest. The young man who actually comes to his dad and he requests the unrequestable, I don't even know if that's a word, but he requests something that he shouldn't be asking for and he comes to his dad and he said, Dad, I've had enough of you, I've had enough of your rules, I've had enough of living under your homes, I want my inheritance now and I want to shoot through. I've had enough. I'm going to go and create my own identity. I'm sick of being under your roof. I'm sick of being under your rule. Give me the money and let me go. The Bible tells us that in Jewish culture that the eldest son would receive two-thirds of the wealth. And then the second son, if you're a third son, you're in serious trouble. But if you were the second son, you would then receive the remaining third. The Bible tells us, it's a parable, it's a story, it's a teaching tool. The Bible tells us in this that the father is a good father, a loving father, and the father sells a third of everything that he owns and he gives it to his second son. The story goes quite quickly because as he leaves, he just goes. The actually, the older brother actually gives us a little bit of an indication on what sort of stuff he thinks his second eldest brother was, his, his second brother was up to. But the oldest brother in the story believes that he went and swanted on wine, women and song. He went into town and he had a great time, apparently. He had a sinful time. He was, he was sinning to the sins, nth degree. He was, he was just ripping it out. His friends were taking his money and going along for the ride. And when the money ran out, his friends ran away. And the Bible tells us that we find him doing something that a Jew would never find themselves doing. It's actually working in a pigsty, feeding pigs. Jews don't eat pigs. Jews aren't associated with pigs, just like Muslims. Pigs are seen to be completely and utterly unclean. They are a sinful beast, and his life had escalated, de-escalated, to the point where now he had gone from being the second son to a prominent dad who loved him. He'd taken his money, he'd squandered it, and now he found himself feeding pigs. He found himself feeding pigs. The Bible tells us in the parable that he actually begins to question, he actually begins to think back on who his father is. And he says, you know what, even my dad's servants will be looked after better than I am. He makes a decision to resign. He makes a decision to go home. I can imagine every step going home. The young son, second son, must have been thinking to himself, how am I going to explain this one to my dad? The whole community will be so embarrassed about me. The whole community will be ashamed of me. How will my older brother feel? How will my dad react? The Bible tells us that the father was waiting. The Bible tells us that the father was waiting for his son to return every day. Waiting. And, and as he saw his son in the distance, he didn't just take slow steps as the son must have been taken. He took fast steps. Old men in the, in, in the Bible did not run 
which is a good thing for some of us as we're getting older. You don't need to run. It's a biblical truth. Um, but he actually lifted up his coat. Again, a rich man would not show his legs. And he lifted up his coat and he ran to his son. This tells us something about the father in this story. He is not embarrassed to run to you and I if we are sinners. He's not worried about the protocols and the norms of society. He will break those because God the Father is interested in relationships. And the Father lifts it up and he runs. He finds his son. He takes off. Not only go find the best coat, he gives him his coat. And he puts it around his son. He takes off his ring, puts it on his son. He comes back. People didn't have time to go, oh, that's four rats back. There was no time because the master of the house, the father, had said, go find the fatted calf, bring it, feast, invite the whole community. We will rejoice because my son who was lost has come back. Has come back. It is the most incredible story of a father's love for a son. But if we can, and this is going to push you a bit here, Lockie, but if we can go to verse 28. The older brother. The older brother was out working. The older brother didn't know what had been happening. He, in fact, he could just hear noise. There was stuff going on at home. But in verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice it's not even my brother. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. For we have had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And he is now found. Let us stop there for a moment just to see the truth. The Bible is teaching us that Jesus is teaching us in this parable. And it's incredibly rich truth. It shouldn't have been called this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. For the son is never the hero. It should have been called the parable of a loving father. Because in this parable, the father is the hero. For it tells us rather about a father's love for a lost son. It tells us much about the forgiveness of God. The father must have been waiting and watching for the, for the son to return. For he saw him a long way off and he went and collected him. You know, Abraham Lincoln when he was fighting in the Civil War in America, was once asked this question. A very powerful question, but his response is incredible. He was asked how he was going to treat the rebellious Southerners when they'd finally been defeated and had returned to the Union of the United States. The questioner expected that Lincoln would take a dire vengeance, but he answered this, I will treat them as if they had never been away. It is the wonder of the love of God that he treats us like this. 
it's not the end of the story. Because the attitude of the older brother really stinks. The attitude of the older brother is that critical mass that was, that's within each one of us. It's not fair. I've always been the good boy. How come that wretched naughty boy gets treated with all your love when I've been here all along? But the attitude of the son, the eldest son, teaches us a lot about the attitude of people who sometimes are so religious that they're not actually followers of Jesus Christ. They are just followers of the system. System of belief. A system that sometimes we could call the church. Number one, the older brother. His attitude shows that his years of obedience to his father had been years of grim duty and not of loving service. Number two, his attitude is one of utter lack of sympathy. He refers to the prodigal son, his brother, not as any brother, but as your son. He was the kind of self-righteous character who would have cheerfully kicked the man farther into the gutter than they had already been. He, he had a particular nasty mind. There was no mention of harlots until he mentions it. He no doubt suspected his brother of the sin. He himself perhaps <laughs> would have liked to have committed himself. Once again, we have this amazing truth. Remember these three parables about the gospel in the gospel. We have an amazing truth that it's easier to confess to God than it is to men. That's a really important point because for many of us, if we feel so clogged up by sin sometimes, it's just too hard for us. The easy part of sinfulness is that we have a loving God who forgives us. We have a loving God that will gird up his clothes and even though it's not right for an old man to run and bare his legs, he'll do that for you. He'll run to you. He will search you out and he will find you. Our Father will always accept you back. The Father will never, will never let you make your own life choices. Our Father is interested in the lost, in sinners. Our Father will search and will find you. Our Father is patient. And when a sinner returns to him, he will rejoice like no one is watching. That is the gospel within the gospel. Oh, that stupid story of the keys. Well, it's a little embarrassing. In fact, it's a lot embarrassing. Um, because you see, you know when you lose something, people always have really good advice. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not if you know what I'm talking about. Everyone's an expert when it's not their stuff that's lost. Well, I had a whole church of experts who was willing to direct me. And uh, I don't like it. If I lose something, I want to find it myself. It's not your problem. It's my problem. Anyway, I was getting cranky. And, and as I was looking for these stupid keys, people kept saying, have you retraced your steps? Some of you have been in that situation, haven't you? Have you retraced your steps? Yes. It had been a busy day. The steps had gone everywhere. How's I going to find these stupid keys? And Pathfinders was beginning to wrap up. They were going to lock up soon. And I was the one who was still looking for the stupid keys. Well, thought to myself, we started with breakfast. So 
I, w- I looked in the car. Is it in there? And I'd already taken some food back out. So I'm like even checking in the bread. Is it in the bread? It's not in the bread. Is it in the wheat bix? No, there's not much good in wheat bix. Is it? <laughs> oh, just a little bit with honey. Well, anyway, so I was looking to these silly keys and, and I went into the youth room and, um, and I, everything had been packed up and we'd put the toaster and the kettle and a few things in the back of the cupboard and I lifted up the toaster to move it and as I lifted up the toaster to move it, I heard a rattle of metal on metal. I thought, that's unusual. That's not something you hear every day. So I pulled out the four toaster and I looked inside and right down the bottom were my set of masterpieces of cheese. Who would look there? Like, honestly, where, what stupid person would hide their keys in a toaster? Um, It's not a place we look. And I found them and I came out. Now, the most humbling part of the story was that I had to testify, I had to actually share with the people in the junior Sabbath school room who'd been my painting buddies where I had found them. Half my mind was thinking, do I make up a story? I thought, no, I'll just tell them the truth because it sounds made up. So I said to them, you wouldn't believe where I found it. And Pastor Travis, who was passed down, he goes, oh, where? And I said, it was in the toaster. You wouldn't have looked there, would you, Pastor Trav? No. No, you're joking. It wasn't in the, it wasn't in the toaster, Pastor Trav. Uh, that's exactly where I had placed it. Don't ask me how I put it in the toaster. Um, I have no idea. But I believe that my angel had taken the keys and plonked them in there as a practical joke on me. There was something weird going on. But it was so good to find the keys. I could lock up and I could go home. Felt good. The essence of the gospel is that these three parables in Luke 15 are not simply three ways of stating the same thing. There is a difference. The sheep was lost through sheer foolishness. And many people in this earth are lost through sheer foolishness. But the shepherd, our Jesus, will leave the 99 and come and find the crippled sheep. The coin was lost through no fault of its own. Many a man is led astray and God will not hold him guiltless. But the reality is God is in the business of helping us to find out what our mistakes are and making some change. The son deliberately got himself lost, callously turning his back on his father. But the father never gave up on him. The father waited. Father waited for his son to return. The simple truth of the gospel in the gospels is this. Our God, the Father, Jesus Christ, is interested in the sinful lost people. And he wants to build a relationship with you and with me. That is the gospel within the gospel. Next week, Jason will actually be preaching for us about the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's one I hope you don't miss. I hope you invite your friends. 
um, the Holy Spirit is often misunderstood, perhaps. Um, but I think it would be an excellent one to bring the Holy Spirit. For some of us next week, we'll be away. Just a few of us, uh, we're at the Throwing Together Summit at Strength, uh, some of the young adults. And um, yeah, I pray that each one of you um, has a good week and for our privilege to close in prayer. God in heaven, the gospel in the gospels is one of the most powerful teaching tools that you've given us. Those three parables, um, each one of us sometimes can fall into either category within those three parables. But Lord, they are so rich. It's a real testimony of who you are. It's a real testimony of who God the Father is. That you are just willing you're all about sinful people and, and you know there are times in our lives we're lost, we're very lost. And you'll come and search us. You'll come find us. And on other occasions, you'll just patiently wait. I pray that uh, what we've spoken about today is a lesson for each one of us. We can apply to our lives. Amen.